Back to another episode of Unwise Girls. I'm your host, Jacqueline. And I'm Jane. And we are your favorite funny little show all about the Percy Jackson series at all. Uh, how you doing today, Jane? Uh, I'm doing pretty good, thanks. You? I'm doing perfectly alright. It's hot as hell. Oh no. There's a million flies in my house. If I walk into a room, like at least 20 flies will be in any given room, including the bathroom, which is very lovely. Oh, I'm very sorry. I had to do some some pest control in here before I started recording, too. Really? What kind of pest did you have? Uh, two moths and three spiders. Oh, no. Yeah, it wasn't great. No. You're you're a braver woman than I. Thank you. I've got a, um, the Hoover's, like, tube thing over my lap like a shotgun. Just waiting okay. in case I see anything again. Very smart. You just have all... You just, like, are vacuuming up the bugs? Yeah. What if they crawl out? I leave the vacuum on for a good 20 seconds after I get them and hope that the oh. fan gets them. Oh, I see. You're a monster. <laughs> listen, listen. Inside the house, that's my bit. Outside the house, that's their bit. As long as we kind of keep that balance, there shouldn't be any problems. I see, I see. I'm currently staring at a very large spider that could oh, be deadly no. uh, at, on my wall. You, you can stop and get rid of that. That's less important than the podcast. Listen, like I said, my house is infested with flies. I am not going to begrudge a spider right now. Because the spider will eat the flies and solve the problem? Typical. Typically, yes. I mean, fair. Uh, speaking of, uh, peep, pe- speaking of big insects, speaking of big people, uh, taking down small people, uh, Speaking of confrontations, uh, we're reading Percy Jackson, the chapter is Titan's Curse this week. It's true. Uh, let's go right to the summary. Yeah. This week we read from chapter 15 to chapter 17. So chapter 15, I wrestle Santa's evil twin. The gangs have flown across the Sierras by the wings of the Republic, while Thalia closes her eyes and tries not to focus on how high up they are. Percy tells her about Rachel Elizabeth Dare, and Thalia explains that some mortals are just naturally able to see through the mist. It occurs to Percy that his mum must be the same way, as she was able to see the Minotaur in Half-Blood Hill, and wasn't surprised by Tyson being a Cyclops. The next morning, Zoe, Grover, Percy, and Thalia are dropped off on the docks by the statues, and after briefly panicking about the fact that they don't know what to do, Grover reminds them that they came here to find Nereus and ask him about the monster that Artemis was hunting. Zoe, while unenthused, says that she knows where to find him, among a bunch of homeless guys on the docks. Percy is dressed up in clothes from a goodwill to help him blend in, and is told to go looking for a homeless guy who smells different from the others. Percy eventually finds a guy who does, who looks a lot like Santa Claus. Percy grabs the man, who turns out to be Nereus, as the only way to talk to him is to hold on to him for a while. In response to this, Nereus dives into the ocean, changing into several different sea creatures to try and shake Percy off and avoid divulging any information, but Percy manages to hold on using his sea god powers. When he eventually surfaces and gives up, he grudgingly tells Percy that the dangerous monster Artemis sort is right next to them. With that, he vanishes, right before Bessie reappears. 
Percy explains his and the sea cow's history to the others, and Grover talks to it a little, finding out that its name is the Ophiotaurus. The penny finally drops for Zoe, who tells the others that Bessie is the monster that Artemis was after, not because he's dangerous, but because he's an innocent creature, and sacrificing him therefore grants a lot of power, enough power to destroy the gods. It almost happened in the first Titan War, and it's now happening again. Just then, Dr. Thorne appears, attempting to goad Thalia into sacrificing Bessie and fulfilling the prophecy of the Big Three's children. The worst part is, Thalia is seriously tempted by this. The opportunity to reunite with Luke and get her own back against the gods who have made her life miserable is appealing to her. But before she can make a decision, Grover attacks Thorne with a set of vines, and Percy tells Bessie to dive and escape. The other kids run for it on land, hiding next to a water fountain which they can use to contact Camp Half-Blood. Unfortunately, they get Mr. D instead of Chiron. Before Percy can disconnect and try someone more useful, Thorne surrounds them with several mortal mercenaries. Percy grits his teeth, buries his pride, and asks Mr. D nicely to help them. In response, he creates a purple fog which turns the mortal mercenaries temporarily insane, and mulches Thorne with a huge grapevine. With that problem dealt with, the gang realise that they need to get to the Garden of Asperities before sundown to rescue Artemis in time for the winter solstice. Chapter 16. We meet the Dragon of Eternal Bad Breath. There's a dilemma over what to do with Bessie. Leaving him alone could let him fall into Luke's hands, which would be a disaster. But the kids need to get to the mountain ASAP. Eventually, a plan is formed. Grover will try to escort Bessie back to Long Island, using the Sea Cow's ability to teleport into different bodies of water with a blessing from Poseidon to protect them. Percy realises he needs to sacrifice his Nemean lion coat in order to secure this blessing, and does so, declaring that he can't win just by copying Heracles anyway. Grover and Bessie head off, and Percy, Zoe, and Thalia try to find transportation to the mountain. To do this, they go to Annabeth's dad's house, and find it surprisingly nice given that Annabeth has a fairly rocky relationship with her family. They explain the situation to her dad, who agrees to lend them his car to get to the mountain. Surprisingly, Annabeth's stepmother, who she really doesn't like, is happy to let the plan go ahead. On the way to the mountain, the gang notice that the Princess Andromeda is moored nearby, and are then immediately distracted from this as they have to bail from the car, just before a lightning bolt destroys it. Thalia suspects Zeus, because of the one shall perish by a parent's hand part of the prophecy, but Percy insists that it's Kronos trying to goad her, they climb the mountain and come to the Garden of the Hesperides, Zoe's former sisters. They greet her coldly and threaten to sick their thousand-headed, acid-breathing dragon on her and her friends if she doesn't get lost. Zoe calls their bluff and summons the dragon herself, leveraging her previous connection with it to distract it long enough for Percy and Thalia to run for it. She attempts to follow, but sustains a nasty wound from the dragon in the process. Finally, they reach the peak of the mountain, which Zoe and Thalia identify as Mount Orthus, the mountain fortress of the Titan their equivalent of Olympus. The difference is that Orthus is ruined, and Olympus doesn't have Atlas in the middle of it, holding up the sky. Then again, Orthus doesn't have that anymore either, because as the trio approach the point where sky meets Earth, they find Artemis, not Atlas, holding it. At this point, an extremely sick-looking Luke, his army, a bound Annabeth, and the General arrive at the top of the mountain, and it's finally confirmed that the General is indeed Atlas. And not just that, Atlas is Zoe's father. Chapter 17. I put on a few million extra kilograms. 
After some back and forth taunting, Luke summons a small pool of water, and begs Thalia to summon Bessie into it so that they can destroy Olympus together. Cronus's coffin, carried by some of Luke's guards, begins to glow, and the ruined Mount Orthus rebuilds itself as Luke tells Thalia of the glory of what they'll do together. After a hesitation, however, Thalia refuses, claiming that she doesn't know Luke anymore. The three heroes charge the enemy horde, facing certain death. Thalia attacks Luke, and Zoe and Percy attempt to dogpile Atlas to no avail, as Ares' curse comes back to haunt Percy at a critical moment, allowing Atlas to drive a javelin into his chest. Percy realises that nothing is going to defeat a titan except an Olympian, and the only one they can ask is currently holding the sky. So he crawls over to Artemis and offers to swap with her to allow her to take on Atlas. Reluctantly, she agrees, expressing doubts about whether he can survive. Percy finds out how justified these doubts are a few minutes later, as holding up the sky is pure agony, especially as he can only watch as his friends fight for their lives. Artemis takes on Atlas but can't beat him in a straight fight, and during the confrontation the titan smashes Zoe into a stone pillar, leaving her crumpled. However, Artemis is able to use a telepathic link with Percy to construct a ruse, which lures Atlas into charging at Percy, and then being crushed by the sky as Percy rolls out of the way, leaving the titan under his old burden once again. There's a moment of reprieve as much of the army is still marching up the mountain, Thalia disarms Luke and holds him at spear point, hesitating to finish him. Luke tries to take advantage of her mercy, and gets a boot in his chest for his trouble, sending him tumbling down the mountain to his death. He's not the only casualty either. Zoe is dead, as it turns out that the wound she sustained from the dragon was poisoned, and the blow from her father finished her off. She is the one who has perished by a parent's hand. Right as the enemy army regroups and prepares to crush the heroes, they hear a strange buzzing sound, and turn to see Annabeth's father flying a World War I replica plane, machine-gunning Luke's army from the air. Artemis takes advantage of the confusion to summon her own transport, a flying sled pulled by a deer, and Thalia, Percy, and Annabeth and Artemis fly into the sky. Point of order, I guess, really fast on a couple of points. I don't think Zoe actually has died yet. Has she not? She didn't actually die. She, um, but she, it was like, hey, she is die. It seems like she is dying. That's how I read it when they were just like, oh, an atmosphere of grief hung in the air. I like that. <laughs> grief is what you do when someone died. Yeah, but her eyes are still fluttering after that, too. So I think it's, I think she's not quite still. I, I mean, I'm, she's gonna, we, we know she's gonna die. Like, she's yeah. obviously going to die. Yeah, I mean, it shows us Luke, like, in a crumpled pile on the ground. I guess it wouldn't shy away from explicitly saying, and then Zoe stopped breathing. Well, I want to talk about that a little bit, too. Mm-hmm. So first, I just want to say these were excellent chapters. I am really happy with these, and I think there's a lot of really good stuff in them. I, one could argue that these were the best set of chapters we've gotten so far. I think it's definitely in the running. Yeah, definitely. Let's get right into Luke's death. Definitely. I, I have Luke thoughts. Yes, tell me about your Luke thoughts. Uh, my my Luke thoughts are that I feel like books two and three have just been a story of him just not really fulfilling his potential as a character. Uh-huh. Although I guess to a degree that might just be like my expectations not being fulfilled. Because what I really wanted was for Luke to become like the major main antagonist of the series. But that's... 
Luke's has constantly been playing second fiddle to other antagonists. Very true. I don't know. I feel like it would be it would have been less of a problem overall if those antagonists were a bit more interesting. Mm, I see what you mean. What are your Luke thoughts? Give, give me some of yours. My Luke thoughts to this point are that, okay, I'll reserve the second one. Okay. I want to talk about the first one, which is that let's say that Luke just died. He mm. went out on a banger note. He left having had one of the coolest duels in the series with Thalia. Oh, definitely. Even though it was like, almost entirely in the background up until like the beginning and the end. It was still somehow one of the best like like head-to-head duels. Yeah, we, we only get a little bit of it, but there's like... It's acrobatics, it's dodging around each other, it's lightning flying everywhere. It's really cool. It's really good. And the way it ends is him basically goading Thalia into killing him. Mm-hmm. Because he's seen to this point that she is not going to join him, at least not right now. Okay, that that's kind of interesting. That's not how I read it. Really? Go, tell me, how, how did you read it? I mean, I read it as like... Luke is kind of doing the cornered villain routine, but his heart is not in it at all. He kind of does the whole, well, are you going to kill me thing? But it like points out that he, you can like hear him being terrified. Oh, I, I have no doubt that he was terrified here. I don't think that was an act. Mm-hmm. I just think that this was still a play because Luke is like in the shit. He is extraordinarily entrenched in these like ideals. And he wants to bring Thalia over to it to the side, like yeah. desperately wants Thalia on his side so much. And to that point, I think this was his final move, at least uh-huh. of the book, because that kind of leads to my second view that I don't think Luke is dead. Okay, interesting. I mean, it is one of those deaths that's quite easy to retcon. Right, and I think that like. I think that because of the reason that it doesn't really feel narratively satisfying, Uh I think that's why he's not dead. Yeah, that's definitely a possibility. I don't know. As much as I'm disappointed by him dying, or seeming to die at this point, I'm kind of hoping that the story just commits to it and we get to see exactly how this has fucked up Thalia. This is like her murdering her former best friend. It's going to fuck her up. Absolutely. And I think what makes this duel and this entire section so interesting to me is that Luke and Thalia are extremely similar. They're both like, they both hate the power structure of the gods that has like forced them to suffer for all these years. But there's just like a difference there that made Luke fall into like the like reactionary, like chrono side, as opposed to how Thalia is like wavering, but isn't going there. Yeah, and I really like that there's almost like a kind of ambiguity there, where it's kind of a there but for the grace of God go I, where it is like, is Luke just this way because he's older and more cynical, and would Thalia have gone the same way if she hadn't been stuck in a tree for five years? Right, if, like if Luke was the one stuck in a tree, and Thalia was the one out there, Yeah, like, I, I really was do wonder that too. And I think because of this, Either way, I, do, I, I think it'd be more interesting if Luke wasn't dead because I think that he's going to come back later 
And Thalia is going to have changed because of this. This is a pivotal character moment for Thalia. And I'm really into that. Like, I think ultimately this is a victory for him. And I think that he isn't going to go out on that victory. Mm-hmm. I hadn't, I hadn't really seen it that way, but I can definitely see, yeah, like goading her into killing him kind of dark side shit. Right, right. This is a very Star Wars chapter. <laughs> or at least this specific conflict is very Star Warsy. The rest isn't well, really Star Warsy at I, all. I mean, it has a parent beating the shit out of almost killing their child. That's a lot of Star Wars. You know, that's that's very true. That's very true. God, I like all I want to talk about is this last chapter because it was so good. Oh, that's that's interesting. Like I that was this wasn't even my favorite moment in these chapters. What was your favorite moment? Uh my favorite moment is uh Percy taking off his uh Nemean lion coat and chucking it into the water. I want to talk about that with you a lot. So I want to hear your thoughts. So, I feel like this moment maybe recontextualizes a lot of the maybe like slightly harsher criticisms we've had of the series so far right because up to this point we've the view we've kind of had is that it's maybe a little bit uncritical and i think Mm. um one of the words we used to describe it in the previous episode was chauvinistic we've definitely said that in the context of like politics for sure definitely but i feel like this is maybe the series building to a bit of a thesis statement because we can clearly see that, like, Percy is not uncritically accepting the status quo. Like, he's even engaging with a frustration that Luke had, because Luke was pissed off that he had to do a Hercules quest, this exact Hercules quest, and it showed how stagnant the gods were. And Percy's rejecting that as well, by consciously diverging from what Heracles did on this quest. You're totally right, and this is a great point for the series, I think. This definitely feels like it's going to become something more. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. This is this feels like Percy's big moment of the book, uh, other than him taking on the way of the world. Like, this somehow feels like equal to that in a way. It's it feels like kind of a crystallization of like vaguer thoughts that he's had in previous books. It, the thing about like him viewing the gods as bullies in Lightning Thief that was a lot less developed than this idea. But you can see how it's built across the course of the series into him being critical of the gods. And as much as all that is true, I think it's also maybe important to discuss, like, how well does this just work as, like, a moment in this book? It very much rides on this idea that, like, Percy is abandoning something here with, like, some, like, idea that he held before is, like, he is now forsaking or challenging yeah. Specific- specifically his like hero worship of Hercules. He like only has talked about that once and that was in Sea of Monsters. Yeah, it's a bit it, the idea that he like worships Hercules is a little bit out of nowhere, but more generally the idea of like questioning demigods and some of them being actually pieces of shit has been like a big point that's come up a few times in this book. So I'm okay with this as a resolution to it. For sure, for sure. But it does feel a little weaker than it would have if, like, the idea that Percy really admired Hercules came up a few times in this book. I don't want to do an I told you so for an arc that I was kind of hoping would come up in this book. But I think switching between Theseus and Hercules as, like, the two that get shot on was maybe a mistake. And it should have been, like, either one or the other. And that would have allowed to, like build a bit a greater connection between percy and that uh demigod a few points that are 
just like silly small things uh-huh. i guess i don't know maybe it's not small i didn't think about how luke this was literally the quest that luke went on before he yeah. visited like do you think that's maybe like when he do you think he could have met atlas before huh no i didn't think of that but that's very possible I mean, possibly not, because he only got to the garden and then got the shit kicked out of him by the dragon. But yeah, I can definitely see how that would be, like, how he got in touch with the Titans in the first place. That makes a lot of sense. Right. And I I just think it's... I hadn't considered it, but that's a really... Like, that could be a really chewy connection later on. Yeah. Uh, The second point is that... It's interesting how this book always says Hercules... Uh, instead of Heracles, because that's, like, the Greek one. Oh, yeah, that was kind of weird. Yeah, like, I wonder... I wonder why. Like, I know it's because of brand recognition, right? Yeah, I, I would well, assume that's so. There's a there's a Her- well-known Hercules movie from the 90s, therefore... Yeah, but uh, I don't know. Speaking of uh, things that are, like, vaguely cursed, the Chase family is, like... This is the type of household... That, like, if it was 2021, they would have, like, two 3D printers, a bunch of Lego sets around, like, minifigure paintings. They would have weekly D&D games. I don't know how intentionally this is a call-out for my dad's house, but you're just <laughs> describing my dad's house. This is a semi-intentional call-out, but also it's, <laughs> it struck me how similar they felt to what you've described. This is like this this is a very like striking image that is painted of the Chase household. I even have a stepmother who I fucking hate, so <laughs> <laughs> Oh wow. You really are the daughter of Athena. Yeah, I mean she's she's like misgendered me several times, so I don't mind saying that on record. Yeah, that's fucking evil. But yeah, I I think this is another like this is another thread that I'm glad has like continue to be explored throughout the books is annabeth's home life yeah definitely uh, like getting to actually meet her like dad and stepmom has like kind of done wonders for fleshing out like how she feels about them like it's not a very unexpected nuance but i'm glad that things keep evolving like with annabeth you know what i mean yeah i think it's also like like, the series has been portraying a lot of different ways to have a difficult relationship with your parents. Right. So I think this just, like, adds even more diversity to the pile of slightly fucked up parent-child relationships we've seen so far. Totally. Like, like you know, there's Clarice, who has a violently abusive dad. There's Luke, whose dad just... And, like, basically every kid at Camp Half-Blood whose parents yeah. just fucking abandoned them. Gabe was more kind of, like... Uh, much more verbally abusive, just kind of a horrible piece of shit. And now we have the Chase family, who is like, on the surface, this is a very, like, fun, nice family. Like, a very normal mode family, I guess. But it's obvious that there are still tensions there that exist. For sure. I feel like the biggest, maybe, mark against these is, like, the best chapters in the series is the nearest stuff. Okay. What's, What's your grudge there? It's just a little bit of, like, you know, standard-to-be-expected weird attitude towards homeless people. Oh, totally. It's such... It's uh, so gross. Yeah. And it's all, uh, on top of that, it's also just, like, a very long scene that's kind of nothing. I think it... 
I think the premise... Okay, I want to talk about the, like, the gross, like, obvious, like, oh, there's, like, the way that homeless people are betrayed in this is, like, oh, they're crazy, they're smelly, they're, they're like, weird. It's very, like, oh, the homeless people they encounter are yelling about, you know, Martians and, you know... Angels from Mars, I believe. Yeah, which, to be fair... Like anyone would believe that when they, if they literally see giant angels that are made of metal land yeah. on the pier. Hey, brief aside, the 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 statues fuck. The statues do fuck, and like <laughs> they they talk about like ah uh, you know we went we we our buddies showed us to this museum. There were some nice lady marble statues, and we, we just and fucked it, some classical architecture, I guess. Yeah, and the other one was like, there are kids here, Hank, or whatever. <laughs> and it, it's very... Why did the statue... Do they have, like, how? Like... I mean, li- listen, we have put on our Twitter account uh, a post about how delicious their toes are. So I don't think we can get mad at Rick for sexualizing them. You d- you were the one who chose to add that specific <laughs> caption, I have to say. You said, I'll tweet out a picture of them. And I was like, okay. And you were like, mmm, delicious, toesy, woesies. I love them out of my mouth. And, I, you know, I just wanted to make that disclaimer that I did not write that. Listen, you have you have the password for the Twitter account. You can stop me. I, I can, but I won't because I'm a coward. <laughs> And but it's like oh it describes them all as like oh they're all smelly one of them is you know pushing a shopping cart full of flamingos some of them have plastic grocery bags as hats it's really bad yeah it's really weird that Percy is told that he has to like put on some clothes from a charity shop to quote unquote blend in like he's walking into a lion's den or something it feels like it feels like such a like comedy kids movie type of thing yeah. Oh, the weird homeless guy will stab you with a shank. Or, like, not even that, but just, like, the the way that they have, like, him dressing up and the, the way they describe it is very, like, this is act not... Act homeless. Act homeless, right. God. Yeah. Not, I, I really hate it. Um, It's not great. It's such a demonization of, like, unhoused people and mentally ill people that I really... This this is this is definitely a mark against this being the best of the chapters for sure. Mm-hmm. I think the wrestling match itself was like a silly, fun, quick little scene. Yeah, that's just fun. But uh, like you said, I kind of wish there's a bit more to Nereus, maybe. Yeah, he's kind of been built up for well, not really built up, but he came up fairly early in the book, and then he's just kind of a guy who looks like Santa and can turn into a sea lion. <sighs> He's not interesting enough. He's just not interesting enough. Yeah. He doesn't really justify the space he takes up in these chapters. He, he, yeah. And it, uh, it builds to something more interesting, which is the, I, I guess, like, okay, kind of interesting. The Thorn stuff. Like, they actually incorporate the Manticore not being as well known into the story. That is kind of neat. And I guess that's that's Rick once again destroying me with facts and logic because I complained that the Manticore was kind of a shit villain at the start of this book. Yeah. And now that's being leaned into. But I think the stuff at the end of the chapter, like, Thorn coming back as, like, a dogged villain who, like, is just getting more and more torn down despite the, like, prestige he wanted to present at first. That is quite funny. Yeah. We also get Mr. D's second epic moment in this book. This was a lot. This was super epic. This was maybe, like, top ten cool god moments of the entire series. Oh, absolutely. Because I feel like 
one one of the maybe issues that the series has is that it will kind of imply something and then not quite follow through on it. Mm-hmm. Like we see Zoe like shooting fart arrows at people at some points, which is like not what you'd expect from a magical hunter. Totally. But you know, we had it foreshadowed a couple of books ago that Lord Dionysus can fucking turn you crazy and destroy you with vines. And what do you know? He does exactly that. It's just really cool. The way that it's like so... They're like on the edge of death and he takes the last moment to just like destroy them. Yeah. It's such a show of godly force that I almost feel like we haven't seen up to this point. I think this is like the most powerful thing we have seen a god do. Definitely. Because, like, Ares just kind of tried to hit Percy with a sword. Like, that right, was cool. Right. That was a cool fight. But, like, Very, yeah. in terms of magical power, it's not quite the same. This is, like, what you would expect from the gods to do. Definitely. I, I, I guess him, like, driving them crazy is the big thing. Arguably plays into, like, the kind of demonization of mental illness that happens in this chapter. There's a little bit of that, yeah. Because it's like, oh, they they could really blend in here, ha ha ha, you know? But it, it it's not funny. Yeah, if I wanted to be, like, charitable, like, you could just say it's maybe, like, it's not mental illness, it's like, they've got the horrors because of overexposure to alcohol. But, like, you know, the rest of these chapters, Rick hasn't really earned the benefit of the doubt with regards to that, so... What are the horrors? It's like, I don't actually know what the proper term for it is it's like uh shaking and hallucination if you um if you're going into withdrawal from lack of alcohol basically oh okay that's an that's an actually that's that's an interesting take on what the powers could be that's mm-hmm. actually fascinating does zoe's like return to the sisters and like the fight with Ladon and like her getting injured how did that play to you i don't know it was a little bit nothing i guess yeah just because we don't really know anything about the other sisters. Yeah, and I also don't think that maybe there was enough established. There was there wasn't enough suspense, and maybe the moment didn't go on long enough. You know, I wish there was maybe a little bit more interaction with them. Yeah, I think it is it is a cool moment when Zoe just like calls their bluff. But yeah, I think you're right. It should have been built up a bit more. Right, like there's I wish it felt less like just another just another, you know, one chapter fight scene that they that every single chapter of Percy Jackson is. <laughs> this seems like it should be a very significant moment for a character, and in a lot of ways, it was. I guess it's it's maybe a case of like we couldn't just double whammy two big Zoe character moments in a row because we're about to get into Atlas is her dad, right? So I don't know. Maybe Rick kind of wanted to keep the focus on that. Hmm. I think that it still could have been done really well and it just kind of wasn't. Yeah. Yeah, no, I get what you mean. Arguably, though, it is all one moment, I guess. Like, you know, it it goes straight into Atlas is my dad after the sub with her sisters. Like, it doesn't... It's, it's kind of all one big moment for her rather than, like, separated across the book. Yeah. But I wish that section of it was more fleshed out i guess yeah the the section that came before it was a lot better for me the like climb of the mountain was great at building the tension as in like the drive up in the car the drive up yeah yeah 
like the way that Zoe and Thalia are like snapping at each other even more than usual. And then right as they're like worrying about whether they're going to get there, they see the Princess Andromeda and then, you know, a fucking lightning bolt gets thrown at the car. It just feels yeah, like everything really is talk- getting worse and worse. Yeah, we didn't really talk about that, did we? The part of maybe, you know, Thalia's temptation or whatever, her dad probably just tried to kill her. Yeah, like, Percy seems pretty sure that it was just Kronos. But, like, I don't know, from what we've seen of Zeus in this series, I would not put it past him at all. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think Kronos has lightning-throwing powers yet. Maybe eventually he's in he a will, box. but... Right, he's in a box. And it feels like this is going to be... I think there are one of two options. This is Zeus 1 legitimately trying to kill Thalia because he knows that she's the like child of prophecy or whatever. Yeah, he, like it's, it's very possible that he just watched her. Or at least like because of the blessing from Poseidon, he knows that Bessie's in the picture now. Yeah. And that Thalia has every reason to uh sacrifice him number two which i think is maybe more likely is that he was trying to destroy like something in the car that was like dangerous or had some sort of destructive yeah like that's my thought is that i think this that's more likely for the kind of series this is hmm i i feel like in in general that would be a fair assumption, but like again, Zeus has been presented as such a consistent dickhead. Like he personally sent several monsters that were told to just straight up kill Percy in the first book. So like this isn't even the first time he's tried to murder a child. And but also he did just like give her a blessing. Oh, that's true. But then she did consider killing him. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so to that to that point, I don't know. I think it's kind of up in the air to not to make a pun but you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah there's a lot of ways it could go and like whatever the motivation was i think it'll be interesting for thalia because like if her dad tried to kill her that's gonna push her pretty hard towards luke's position Mm -hmm. and if he didn't then that's kind of challenging one of her core assumptions about him it is i think okay i've said before like oh, this chapter is the best action. Oh, this chapter is the best action. Like, I've uh-huh. said that a few times before. Chapter 17, I put on a few million extra pounds, has, like, the best action set piece in the series so far. Mm-hmm. I, I know we've we've already talked about how cool the Thalia and Luke's awesome special effects Star, War duel, Star Wars <laughs> duel is. But also, Percy's entire deal here rocks. Like, I still think that the Ares fight from the end of book one is the best action scene in the series, but this is still really good. It's really good. And part of what makes it... Part of what increases it to me is the knowledge that, like, the there's something about the idea that the sky is just about to fall on you that makes it so much more tense. Like, yeah, it is, like... Again, not to make a pun, but it is literally putting pressure on everything. Yeah, absolutely. And Zoe's confrontation with Atlas works better to me than the stuff with her sisters. For sure. And because of that, I think that her like fighting against him alongside Percy works a lot better. And then Percy like trying to kill a Titan, realizing this is a little too hard. <laughs> uh I just got a javelin like 
caught my chest. I'm going to go and carry the entire weight of the world and watch the rest of this happen so that like it's it's excellent. This is excellent stuff. Hey, what how's Percy doing, do you think? Cuz he's like after he gets out from under the rock, he's running around and he's picking up Zoe and he's getting the sled. Isn't he still like bleeding to death? Well, I know that it said the javelin like caught him in the chest. I don't know if that means that like literally pierced his chest. Oh, I see. But I I was kind of like obviously he's probably about to crumble. It's like the way that he's positioned after like Atlas gets back under the sky is that he is like horrifically injured, basically. Oh, definitely. I. I kind of want to talk about what the, how the sky falling would go. Okay. But, but it's a lot different than the way you might think of it, like, at first. Like, if you think of, oh, the sky falls down, the entire Earth is destroyed, right? Yeah, it just, like, pancakes everything. But the way that it's specifically described here is a lot different. It's that, like, the sky, in terms of here is like this one specific entity in the sky kind of mm-hmm. like it's obviously metaphysical but it it wouldn't f- like crush the whole world they specific atlas specifically says that it would destroy about 345 miles all around yeah i and i i really like this to be honest right like i i like it when stories actively lower the stakes a little bit from just destroying the world because you're not going to destroy the world, Mr. Writer person. You are, like, unless that's, like, the premise of the story, you're not going to do that. But blowing up a few square miles of land, that's entirely plausible. That might happen if the heroes fuck up badly enough. Absolutely. But, and then you think about, like, because I know you're you're not from the the ha- the the states, you know the states, uh-huh. uh, uh, as as what you might say, uh, you know, across the pond uh, or, or some such. But <laughs> but so three hundred forty five miles in like a circle from San yeah. Francisco, that would destroy that. Like assuming that all that happens is that it just like destroys a set area and nothing else. That would destroy almost all of California. Not all of it, but almost all of it. Oof. That would destroy. That would destroy a good chunk of Nevada and Oregon as well. But also, like, how likely is it that it would only destroy that stuff? You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. If if you blow up like half the continent, it's probably gonna like, I don't know, set off Mount Yellowstone or something. Right. And to be fair, the, the United States is like. 3,000 miles across. Wait, so, what? Yeah. Huh. Like, the, the size of the United States does always fuck me up. The The United States has a total area of 3,794,083 square miles. Right, so you could lose 300 to the sky falling down. You'd be fine. Right. Well, okay, I'm thinking <laughs> about it. And, like, if it's just that much, then, like, obviously that's a horrific disaster. The worst disaster that has ever happened in the entire world. Millions of people dead instantly, yeah. Yeah. But let's assume that it's more like a meteor falling. Yeah. If it's like a meteor falling, that's even worse. Well, like, this would be an... What? I don't know if we want to, like, get into the physics of it too hard. But one of the... Like, the thing that makes 
meteorites so deadly is that they are traveling at like astronomical speeds right if you just like drop the drop the sky it would you know not it would fall at the same rate as everything does it wouldn't actually be falling that fast it would like flatten everything but i don't think it would cause like a huge explosion from stored kinetic energy or anything Mm. okay that's interesting i I had to study physics at a level and i'm gonna make all of you suffer for it yeah i i mean it's a good perspective to have the you know the realist perspective or whatever the you know the physics of it but i'm still considering like if the entire sky dropped down especially since it always seems to be actively trying to fall down that is weird like because of that like i think yeah i think it would have some amount of inertia (laughs) fuck you sky and i think it would like i think this would definitely be like an unheard of ecological disaster like it would at the very least this would cause like tsunamis that like this would be horrific yeah i think that like probably the the closer comparison would be like detonating a nuclear bomb totally totally but do you, the flip side of it right uh-huh elon musk lived in california <laughs> in the early 2000s so he would die so nobody can really say if this is bad or good <laughs> But, uh, I think it's cute. The Zoe was just, like, idly shooting arrows at targets. That's, that's a, lo- that's a lovely detail. I like kind of the whole flight over. Like, there's that. We get the, um, the statue fucking discussion. We get uh, Laura Fowley's extre- Fear of Heights. And we get the thing about uh, Rachel Elizabeth Dare. Yeah, we get, we get the uh, explanation that some mortals are just like that. And that is somehow, to me, very satisfying. Like, I'm glad that the explanation is just some mortals are like that. Because we were wondering, like, how do people know about gods? And the answer is just some mortals are just like that. I, <laughs> I mean, yeah, and it it absolutely, like, it explains something that I hadn't even realized was an issue. But, like, in a really pleasing way. Which is, you know, Percy's mom is clearly able to see straight through the mist. I wonder if that's, like, a... I wonder if that's, like, very common to, like, demigod parents. Like, if that's all demigod parents can see through the mist. Because, uh... Yeah, you'd think What's so. his name? Frederick can, it seems like. Mm-hmm. Because he comes after the... He comes after the, 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 the whole, uh, Kronos force in a biplane. He sure does. Which is... It's a very, like, unexpected but kind of fun little moment. It kind of feels like... This is the good universe version of the party ponies invading. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's ridiculous, but it doesn't undercut the seriousness of the scene, and it's kind of something that was already set up in advance. Absolutely. And, like, I guess the party ponies were set up in advance, but some of it was, like, it's not as good as this is. Yeah, it doesn't have, like, the core, um, the core, like, serious element of this is a man trying to rescue his daughter. Yeah, while while another girl is dying. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't undercut the stakes, I guess. Absolutely not. Yeah, shout out to Zoe for being just like iconic. I I think that like <laughs> she she was being like she got a lot more fleshed out here. Like I think that her shooting the arrows at like tar- passing targets is like very demigod behavior in a way that we haven't seen from her before. Yeah, that's true. Like this is this is ADHD kid stuff. I didn't even think of that, but yeah, that that definitely makes sense. I'm gonna be honest. I did 
almost start crying when I was reading a few points of this. Uh, oh, okay. Speci- specifically, the Dionysus moment, like him actually like acknowledging Percy and sa- helping to save them. That is a really good moment. Right. And then I think that Zoe's death or Zoe's like fate here. Death, maybe, kind of. Probably death. Zoe's uh, horrific injury here and like her (laughs) fighting on despite it and like us finding out that she was like suffering through poison the entire time. Yeah. That's really heartbreaking. We, we have, we have truly evolved our position on Zoe. We do now stand her. We do now stand Zoe. She, we're sorry for calling you a turf queen, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> this is this was really good. Um, some final bits and bobs that maybe you know, we can talk about before we wrap up. Yeah. Uh, Frederick Chase, NMS dad, mentions having a sponsor, like that has a mysterious amount of like World War One memorabilia. I feel like the sponsor is gonna be, end up being like a god or something. Yeah, that that would make sense. I thought you were about to say that they'd be like some weird fascists, but they're, they're more into the World War II stuff. The moment that you tell me, like, I'm really into military history, I'm going to be at least a little suspect of you. You know, I'll, 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 I'll try and learn more about you and be like, maybe that's not true. But Listen, like, the, 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 what? I, I have been known to read military history for fun. Well, I trust you, though. <laughs> Thank you. I think that's about it. Do you have anything? Uh, only um, our famous segment. Uh, let's head right into our famous segment then. Do you have one? I do. Uh, Percy describes um, Annabeth's dad as handsome for an older guy. So, by Percy real, I rest my case. By Percy very real. Um, I'll give it this week to Zoe. Yeah. Because... She has a terrible relationship with her sisters who all reject her. <laughs> they pretend she's like, You're not one of our family. We just see a hunter or whatever. Feels very like she came out and then her family rejected her. And then she ran away to join the lesbian cult. Yeah. Normal stuff. Very. Uh, you know, let's give a quick preview for next week because next week is the final book. No, it's not. Let's give a quick preview for next week because next week <laughs> is the final episode for the Titan's Curse. Yeah. So next week we will be reading uh, chapters 18, 19, and 20. Holy shit, these uh, chapter titles are, uh, they sure are something. Uh, chapter chapter 18 is titled A Friend Says Goodbye. And then chapter 19, The Gods Vote How to Kill Us. And chapter 20 is called I Get a New Enemy for Christmas. I'm excited to read chapter 19. I Same. I'm also excited to see who the new <laughs> enemy is. Yeah, maybe it's Rachel Elizabeth Dare. Oh, that'd be cool. A cool, a cool like mortal villain that would be pretty good. Yeah, especially after the kind of shit mortal mercenaries we got in this book. They were they were simple goons. They were simple goons. It's true. But for now, if you'd like to reach the show, you can drop us an email at unwisegirlspod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at unwisegirls where we also have a link to our official Discord server. If you like us... Okay, I'm going to drop most of this this week. If you really okay. like us, if you if you like listening to our voice, tell a friend about us. That's like the most important thing you could do, is just like, tell a friend. Like, recommend, listen to a couple episodes of this, see if you like it. You know, one person, two two people, 
anybody you know that likes podcasts. Just be Several like, hey, dozen maybe, people. You know, maybe a hundred thousand people. Just, you know, whoever you know that likes podcasts or that, like, is interested in listening to podcasts, maybe give them a, give, like, you know, ask them, check out this funny one. Yeah. But if you want to support us otherwise, which is perfectly valid, you can check out our Patreon. For a dollar a month, you get a special role on our Discord marking you as a camp counselor. For $3 a month, you get an even specialer role as a friend of Dionysus and access to all of, all of our bonus content, just like the uh, the bonus episode we released in the feed last, but with better, but with uh, slightly better audio because I think I had the wrong mic on for that episode. Last With the last bonus episode, we talked about uh, uh, Homestuck Act 4, and it's kind of rough beginning, and we talked about... And also how the Midnight Crew rules. And how the Midnight Crew rules, and a little bit about Discordianism. And a little bit about... I'm just going to read the title of it. Uh, Academic Inflation Kink Citations. So if that sounds like your bag. Yes. <laughs> I honestly can't even remember the context for that. So you know what, <laughs> listener? Enjoy finding it out. Uh, and if you're it's feeling especially... Yeah, it's a journey. If you're feeling especially generous for $5, you get the specialist role of Aphrodite's Chosen. All of our bonus content... And a special shout out at the end of every main episode. Speaking of, uh, this week we'd like to thank uh, Mercy, Veronica, Friend, and Erica, this bitch forgot a two, time to roast her ass, Faye. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. And as we always say, at the end of every single episode... See you next week, Camp Half-Blood. See you next week, Camp Half-Blood. Bye-bye. Bye.